Alrighty, let's pray. We'll start, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, being gracious and merciful to us today, Lord, as I heard the, the, the tornado sirens going off. What a reminder it is of how fragile we are. And uh, Lord, thank you that um, you were merciful to us. You didn't have to be. Lord, you could have easily wiped out this whole town um, and you would have done nobody any wrong because you are so righteous, Lord, and this world is so fallen. Um, and yet, Lord, it just reminds us of how merciful you are. So thank you. Show us your, your mercy and your grace as we study it. Show us your righteousness and your character and your attributes and all of its glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, needless to say, it's been a very eventful uh, week for me. Uh, Pastor Chris um, is preaching uh, this week, and I'm very, very indebted to him because there's no way I could put a sermon together this week. <laughs> Not when I'm babysitting James, James White. Oh, this is on video. i got to be careful. Be careful what he says. Might end up on the DL. Uh, mm. We got all kinds of stories. I can just sit here and share James White stories if you want me to, but he wouldn't like that. <clears throat> well, we are talking about uh, justification. We're moving on to, to, to justification, and um, in doing so, we're coming to a doctrine that is of such great importance that you've heard it said maybe of, uh, before, um, the Reformation, which we subscribe to, the, the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers, Principally, John Calvin and well, Luther and Calvin in chronological order, right? But uh, Luther said that justification is the doctrine upon which the entire uh, faith of Christianity stands or falls. The doctrine of justification by faith alone, to be specific. Um, and, um, you know, uh, that's not to say that there weren't other issues. As a matter of fact, Luther, you know, we pointed this out in small groups, but, you know, Luther said that actually it was the nature of the will that was the chief controversy uh, between uh, Rome and the Reformation, that it was the nature of the will, because Roman Catholicism teaches that, uh, basically teaches a what's known as a Pelagian view of man. Pelagius, going back to the fourth century, taught that man was fallen, but he was still free that although the, 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 the fall had affected him, it did not uh, affect his, the freedom of his will, and that man was born as a tabula rasa, uh, Latin for blank slate, so that he sinned uh, not because he was a sinner, but he sinned because he was in the, in the environment of sin. And, uh, of course, the reformers took issue with that and said, no, that's wrong. Uh, actually, man sins because he is a sinner. <laughs> He necessarily sins, right? So <clears throat> he is a sinner the same way that we would say water is wet. It is the nature of the sinner to sin. It is the nature of water to be wet. Uh, and so then the, the doctrine of justification came up because obviously you understand that uh, Roman Catholicism teaches that there is a certain basis for our acceptance before God, and it is not faith alone. It is uh, anything but faith alone. It is on the basis of infused grace. It is on the basis of the sacraments. It is on the basis of you 
earning or meriting the grace of God little by little, and then at the end of your life, even then, you can never ever be assured that you've earned enough grace to get into heaven. Now, could there be anything more dreadful than that? Mm. I can't conceive of anything more dreadful than that, than to think that your salvation is based on what you do, and at the end of your life, you are told ahead of time you will never know if you've done enough to go to heaven. I mean, talk about spiritual paranoia. Yeah. I, how can anybody die in peace on a deathbed? I couldn't. I would be just, you know, I would be laying in my deathbed reflecting on all my sin, <laughs> not on all my righteous deeds, <laughs> okay? And so, on our, and it reminds me, you know, of a story that Joel Beakey tells of the Puritan, I think it was Thomas Manton or Thomas Goodwin, one of them, uh, went to go see one of his uh, members of his church, uh, a lady who was passing away, laying on her deathbed. He came to minister to her, and he began to question her faith on the, on, on the day of her death and started asking her, are you certain, you know, what is, what is the basis of your peace? Why, why do you know for certain that you will that you will be in heaven, that you will not perish as you cross over, you know, uh, the Jordan shore. You know, if you cross over to Canaan, how do you know that you are going to arrive safely? And then she began to identify that all of her peace, all of her righteousness was in Christ, that she was part of it. And then he began to test her. How do you know you won't, he won't lose? How, how, how do you know that you have not done such things that are so bad that you've jumped out of his hands? And he says, well... I may lose my salvation, she said, but God would lose something far worse than that. He would lose his glory because he has lost one of those whom he said he would, he would never lose. You know, so, uh, and that's a woman that understood the doctrine of justification by faith alone and what it means to be righteous in Christ. You know, yes, ma'am. Yeah. Um, yeah. Most people don't even know that he's written a book. Isn't that amazing? He was a chaplain for two years. Um, he said he, he could only be one for two years because he got too emotional, emotionally involved. He would cry too much. So, but he told about the story of a contrast between two different people. A yeah. woman that when um, her husband died, who was 32 years old, he was out mowing the lawn and, and had a heart attack. Um, and the way that she mourned was without hope. There was her just a wailing, you know, no hope. And then he, he tells him another story of this 95-year-old man. He was like one of the first men to get a pacemaker. And, um, and they could tell from the heart, um, the heart monitor that, you know, he was going to pass away soon. And they, they asked him, they said, um, they said, it's happening right now. Why aren't, don't you know you're dying? He goes, yes, but why should, what I, why should I be afraid of meeting the one that's taking care of me for, for 85 years? Yeah. Amen. He was trusting in the Lord and died in peace. There's a major difference if you don't understand the doctrine of justification, if you don't know what, what, where you're, what the basis of your salvation is. Um, I think I mentioned this before, but uh, the Bible is so careful. Remember when we were going on the, over the constructions in the Greek as to what amounts to uh, notitia or a census or fiducia, and there's certain grammatical constructions. Well, likewise, in the Greek language, there's also grammatical constructions on the use of our salvation in relationship to other things, like faith, like grace, and other things. Well, there's a construction. I think it's, uh, I think it's uh, uh, P. 
pistis, which is faith, with the accusative. And, but never does the Bible use the construction that would make our faith the basis of our salvation. It always uses constructions that show that faith is the instrumentality of salvation. Faith is the means through which we receive the righteousness of God, but it is not itself the basis of it. You are not righteous before God on the basis of your faith. It is on the basis of what? God's grace. Grace. And lo and behold, when you look at the Greek New Testament, you find the construction where grace is at the bottom of it, not faith. So uh, the Holy Spirit knew what he was doing when he inspired the Bible, down to the meticulous grammatical constructions. It's just amazing. Yes, Chris? So is that why, like Ephesians 2.8, you're saved by grace through, through faith? Through faith, correct. Yeah, if that were to be inverted... Sometimes, like, when we're just talking, you know, yeah. common conversation, we might say something like, I'm saved by faith. That's right. You know. Yeah. Yeah, and of course what we mean by that is we, we are saved that. through the agency of faith, yeah. not on the basis of faith, right? That's not the ground of salvation. The ground of salvation is the sovereign grace of God. A lot of... I see a, a lot of people who do fall into that, that ditch. Yeah. It's on the basis of faith. Yeah. I think that one passage, you know, if you're going to proof text it, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is a good way to go, but you don't just proof text it. <laughs> yeah, you'll find uh, Beaky talking about that in the book, Reformed Spirituality. <clears throat> okay, so, order salutis, we've come to justification. As you can see, it is a monergistic act. When we say justification, what does it mean? Anybody else would differ with that definition? To be made right before God? Judicial Chris? Pardoning. Let's say to be uh, declared... Justification is judicial hardening? Pardoning. Oh, I was going to say, <laughs> you're still stuck at the debate, man. <laughs> yes, sir? Um, not disagreeing, just saying um, to be declared in a right standing. Okay. Why, why did you make that distinction between to be made righteous and to be declared in a right standing. That's a, those are different verbs. Yeah, I don't know if there's a difference so much, but I know that like in actuality we're not good, but we are declared good because of what Christ has done. So the, the great substitution. And there's like a legal implication to this. Right, right. Well, I wanna, I'm gonna say something, but I'm gonna let Mike go ahead. Uh, just thinking that the righteousness God's righteousness to His Son Jesus Christ, by what Christ did for us, His obedience unto death and mm -hmm. resurrection, through that brings that so-called grace and righteousness of God uh, in a full conclusion. Mm -hmm. So it's on the basis of those things that we're justified. Yeah. That's right. That's right. There is an important distinction there, though. I mean, if we're talking about being made righteous. That would be more of the language of the fact that righteousness has more of a mystical effect than a forensic effect. You, do you understand the difference? So what the doctrine of justification is not teaching is that by being justified, when the Bible says you have been justified, Right? It is not saying that some sort of mystical experience has taken place whereby you are morally made righteous. 
any more than when Scripture teaches that the people, I think I have the verse coming up here, the people uh, dekaio God. They justified God. So the question is, is did the people, when they declared God righteous, did they make him righteous? Of course not. So when God declares us righteous, does he make us righteous? I would say no. You're still a sinner, right? So it's, it's a long forensic line. So maybe I can, anybody want to add to that? No? Yes, that yes, sir? Sometimes when we uh, are witnessing, there are some of those folks that we would, you know, consider brethren that, that come with us when we're talking about this very doctrine being made right. And they're like, well, you're still a sinner. No, I'm not. I'm a saint. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and they'll bring up the, the Latin saying, um, Simultaneously saint and sinner, yeah. Correct. So how does that, I guess, work when we're, when we're talking in, in such a way with, with unbelievers that, yes, Sim- we're still sinners, but are we actually positionally that anymore? Yeah. Like, is it accurate to say that we are yes. when we're saints? Yes, that's actually a tenet of the Reformation. The Latin phrase is semaustus hustus et peccador, simultaneously just and sinner, so that we do still have moral corruption after justification. So that we're not talking about justification on a practical level, but on a positional level, right? Positionally, our standing before God has actually changed. That's very important because the, the hyper-Calvinists and some that would believe in what's known as eternal justification, they did not believe that a standing for, uh, that there was an actual change in the standing that we have before God, that we have been justified from all eternity. Uh, and they would point to scriptures like, you know, uh, that, that talk about our salvation from the foundation of the world, those types of scriptures. But no, you know, the I think the biblical position is that no, an actual change in status has occurred. Where, where would we maybe find evidence of that? Can you think of anything, Chris? you think of anything? Where would we find evidence that we have changed status before God? You said Romans 8, Trish? Yes. What is that? Um. <clears throat> the whole chapter? <laughs> <laughs> it's a glorious chapter, but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this, yeah, that's, that's not maybe, that might not be specific enough, you know, obviously that's a great verse, but, yes, Chris? Uh, Romans 5.1. Okay. Uh, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah, I guess you can take it's the... Like, it's like, a, it's, it's happened already. You, I guess you can peace. take a argument, and I'm, what I'm asking for is where in Scripture do you see a change of status? You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Going from non-justified to justified, that an actual change of status has occurred. 
Now, that's right. That, that scripture is, you know, one of the hallmark texts on justification. Uh, but it doesn't imply a change of status. It declares only one status. Justification in the verse? Nope. Nope. Just the theology. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Okay. Yeah. That's right. New creation. Adopted as sons. Yeah, so that's kind of the bing, bing, bing. Was that what you were going to say, Robert? No, I was going to go to uh, Romans 5, 19. Because though one man's disobedience, the many will be sinners, even though the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. Excellent. So that shows a state of sin and then a state of righteousness, right? But I was thinking of Ephesians chapter 2, which we, as justified believers, have to be able to say with the Apostle Paul. Uh, we, we, we must be able to say this, right? Um, it says in verse, uh, well, how can you? Verse 1, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, verse 1, you were dead in, tr in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And you might think, okay, that's them, right? The sons of disobedience. But then Paul says, among them, we too. <laughs> See that? We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were, we were, that's a plural, by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So Paul identified himself as a child of wrath, that he went from the from a child of wrath to a child of God. An actual, not just a hypothetical, not just an abstract notion, but an actual transfer of status before God. This is one of the reasons why we go from you know, conceptual salvation to actual salvation. What happens in time and space? What happens in time and space is that you actually change your standing before God. That's, so that's is that one where we're made heirs? When yes, enters? yes, it's, a, it's from justification that adoption, <clears throat> so justification and the next one is adoption, right? Logically, once you've been justified, once you have a right standing before God, then God can legally declare you righteous and he can legally adopt you into his kingdom. So, yeah. Uh, Marshall, yes, sir? Did we say Titus 3? I don't know, which verse? One through three. Yeah, I mean, that's a great verse talking about regeneration and that it's not by anything that we have done. Titus chapter three, verses one through five, you said? Yes, sir. Yeah. <clears throat> well, maybe in verse three, for we were once foolish ourselves. That's right. It's kind of like a parallel to Ephesians 2. Disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when, boy, does that describe our world. <clears throat> but when the kindness of, our God, of, of, of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by which, by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, so that, 
being justified by his grace, uh, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's a great passage, Marshall, because we've gone, we've gone from slaves, right? Because he says you were enslaved to various things, and then we become heirs. So from slaves to heirs in Christ. So that's a great, that's great. Uh, Mike? Let's go with Philippians 2, verse 1 through 12. Mm-hmm. Would that be included? Philippians 2, verses 1 through 12. Um, I, I'm not sure about... Am I missing it? Yeah, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 is mainly focusing on... Uh, the unity of the church and then the condescension of Christ, the Carmen Christi, the, the hymn there talking about Christ's condescension being found in the form of a slave, you know, or being, you know, in the form of God, he humbled himself. So it's a different context. Let me read a definition quickly for us then. Justification, how, how can we define it succinctly? <clears throat> Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, number one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And number two, he declares us to be righteous in his sight. When we're talking about the doctrine of justification, what we're getting at in the order salutis as we've gone through it is we're beginning to try to resolve what happens to our sin. What happens to our guilt? What happens to our condemnation? Uh, Election does not remove our guilt. Effectual calling does not remove our guilt. Regeneration does not remove our guilt. Repentance does not remove our guilt. Strictly speaking, again, logically speaking, it is justification where our guilt is finally declared to be gone. As far as the East is from the West, When God declares you a justified sinner, there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? So, um, again, this the 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 principal word here, dikaiao, the word to declare righteous, has this meaning of 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 a legal uh, recognition and of a recognition of someone's legal status. Again, or righteous status, Luke 7, 29. When all the people and tax tax collectors heard this, they uh, acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. And there is the working word there for dikaiao, Luke 7, 29. So again, it's not that they they made God just. It's not that they made God legally righteous is that they acknowledged it, they declared it, they reckoned it, uh, but they did not, in fact, make him righteous. So in the same way, we are not made morally right upon justification, but we are legally right. We, are, we can legally be, our case, as Ray Comfort likes to say, can legally be dismissed because it has been taken care of in the courtroom of, of eternity. And God and his wrath and his justice has been satisfied. Where do we start talking about the doctrine of justification? Maybe with the concept of justice. It begins with the concept of justice. And this is where 
Christianity really distinguishes itself from all the other religions of the world. Um, ancient Greek mythology had no concept of justification, had no concept of being declared righteous before a holy God. Same thing with the Eastern religions and their, uh, and their philosophy, their, their views of incarnation and karma. There is no such thing as forgiveness. Um, you know, you know uh, a lot of people think that Buddhism is this trendy, sort of hip, cool religion, right? And you're getting, getting your Zen thing going and, you know, and people don't understand that Eastern religion believes in usually caste systems, right? And the caste system in, it basically teaches you not to affect others in their caste. So the rich ought not try to improve the poor because they are of a different caste and that is a result of their reincarnation and their karma, and you ought not interfere with that. You see how demonic that really is? <laughs> you're, so you're not to show mercy to the poor. You're not to try to improve the poor. You're not to try to lift people out of poverty or slavery because they might be in that lower caste as a result of something that happened to them in a previous life. So they're getting what they deserve. It's very wicked. It's very evil. It's very cruel. Yes, sir? Could you say that because man is created in the image of God, that man has an understanding of godly biblical justification? He, he's able to comprehend it, like all men are, able, are capable of, regardless of their upbringing. Uh, their food, a, a, able food. to comprehend God's justice? Right, biblical justification <clears throat> when it's, you know, when it's uh, explained to them. I mean, it's not like they're totally just, it's totally born to them. They're, they're not able to grasp it, right? Sure. Every man, would you say that every man is able to grasp, regardless of where he's from, what kind of culture, background he grew up in, he's able to grasp, you know, the need to, to justify his, his guilt? Sure. I, I think that, um, I think that man, you know, to a degree, right? Because, I mean, through natural revelation and common grace, man can only know so much. Uh, we're told in Romans chapter 1 that they do know certain things, right? They know, they know God's eternal power. They, they, they see something of his invisible attributes being understood by what is made. They understand uh, righteousness because they suppress it. They're in contact with it. But I don't think they know, apart from Christianity, that is, I don't think they know more beyond that. I don't think they would understand the, the idea of biblical propitiation. Right, and uh, and something like that. Uh, even the even the Greek mystical gods, they had ideas of appeasement, but nothing like what the Bible describes. Yes, sir. They would know like morality in the sense that yeah. that wrong needs to be righted, and, and those kind of real basic things, you know. Yeah. And, and like Romans talking about the works of the law written on our hearts and things like that. Right. That's right. So, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So maybe absolutely. not like a theological you know, robust definition of justification, but certainly, you know... Sense of right evil, and wrong. Evil needs to be punished. Yes. And to show you how perverted this is, uh, look to the American Indian. The natural theology that they had, the natural revelation exposed to them, led them to the most heinous forms of retribution. Having an idea of justice, but then taking that justice to a perverted degree where even in battle, the Indians would cannibalize each other as an act of retribution. They would eat each other's brain. Totally perverted. 
And yes, born out of a sense of justice and moral guilt and moral uh, indignation, but incapable. But without being guided by. Exactly. Without, if not guided by divine revelation, you end up in cannibalism, you see? So natural theology having its limits for sure. Biblical salvation brings God's righteousness and mercy together through the cross. And uh, I just think of the idea of the doctrine of justification. So when we think of justification, what I want to get to is, because we're going to walk meticulously through this doctrine. No hurry. We're not going anywhere. <laughs> What's next? Adoption. What was, that was next, right? Mm-hmm. We won't get to adoption anytime soon because we have to understand the parameters of this doctrine. They're so far-reaching. And what I want to do is kind of give like a biblical theology of justification, not just going to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, <laughs> right? And thinking justification began there. It does not. Justification begins way back in the Old Testament. Just remember that as a principle of hermeneutics. Anytime you're studying any doctrine in the Bible, remind yourself, what Old Testament foundation does this come from? Hilasmas, propitiation, a, a treasured doctrine, right, of, of, of Christians and those who love the doctrine of justification and all and atonement. But where does that come from? It doesn't come from the New Testament. It comes from the Old Testament. This idea of needing to uh, expiate sin, remove it, and propitiate God, satisfy his wrath. All of that comes from Old Testament theology. And so what I'm saying is, if we have this robust idea of where does justification come from, and we will, by the time we arrive at the full, fully developed doctrine in Paul, Pauline, then we will be that much more educated to be able to grasp its implications, its roots, its foundation, and all of it. You see what I'm saying? Instead of just get to the Greek word and parse it. <laughs> you know, no, no, no. We need to think biblically here. Right? We need the whole biblical worldview on justification, not just what the reformers had to say about it, not just what Paul has to say about it, but what the entire uh, uh, council of God has to say about it. So, you guys agree with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, seeing a lot of heads nodding. I was thinking maybe just like one example of that. Okay. It's like back in Genesis you know, 15 with Abraham, where there it says he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Yep. Almost like Paul bases his argument on justification on that text. Right. You know, and the same meaning that we just gave it through faith, through believing in God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Why did, why did Abraham need to be justified? Why did he need to be reckoned as righteousness? Same reason everybody does. <laughs> <laughs> Which is? Yeah, he was a pagan sinner who was called by God's grace to have special revelation. And yeah. <clears throat> He was a pagan? Where's that at in the Bible? That he was a pagan? Chapter 11? Look at where he came from. No, where's that in the Bible? Well, you read Genesis, it says Ur Chaldees, didn't tell you anything about it. Oh. Where does it talk about his paganism? Right? I, I honestly don't know. <laughs> I'm racking my brain. I'm looking to you, Bible scholars, to tell me. <laughs> Exodus comes to mind. I'm stumping myself up here. That's okay. We're thinking together, right? Well, if you go, I think, I think it was in Exodus, wasn't it? Whoever's watching the video by now is saying, like, man, you got to be kidding me. Well, look. 
we're working these things out together. Um, was it Exodus or was it Joshua? Um, anyway, it, we are told that he was uh, worshiping false gods, right? If you guys find it, let me know. Um, or is it, now it's going to bother me. Is it Joshua? The end of Joshua where he gives us the biblical theology of what happened? Yeah, there it is. Joshua 24, verse 2. Joshua 24, verse 2, he says, uh, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river. That's the river Euphrates. <clears throat> uh, and it says, Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they had served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all of the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. Uh, multiplied his descendants. I recently got into a debate with a friend. I hope I'm still his friend. Uh, over the nature of the creation ordinance to be fruitful and multiply because there are some who take it as a moral imperative for today to the degree that you are to be fruitful and multiply just like Adam was in the same exact sense that you are obligated to populate the earth. Mm -hmm. And uh, these folks take it to the degree, of course, where it's as, 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 uh, uh, as fruitful as you can be. So essentially have as many kids as possible. And uh, I was taught by G.K. Beale in his book that actually that phrase has such a deeper meaning that the family integrated people are completely missing. It's, and it's this, that when God mentioned the idea of being fruitful and multiplying, it had more to do with believers than with physical posterity. It had to do with spiritual posterity. It had to do with, uh, and then the, 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 uh, the, the prophets, they pick this up, this language of be fruitful and multiply, the Hebrew phrases, they pick it up in the, in, the, in, the, in the prophets, and they use it for their eschatology, that God is going to uh, multiply his people, not physically, spiritually, <laughs> okay? And uh, anyway, so just a, just a side, sidebar there. What book is that in? G.K. Beals? Is that the... Biblical theology. Biblical. Yeah. Uh, Are there others that agree with that? It's G.K. Beals. I mean, <laughs> no, I'm joking. Yes, for uh, Gerhardus Voss's biblical theology, I think would point to the same thing. Yeah, it doesn't. I'm not saying it that diminishes, you know, or takes away from yes, the imperative, you know, the blessing of being fruitful and multiplying. There is a principle in that, but when you go to the degree of saying, no, 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 you must have as many children as you can, have, and all of that, you know, that is not really what God intended for that phrase. You know. So, anyway, just thought I. I saw the phrase, and so I thought, oh, that's what I was talking about the other day. Mm -hmm. Okay, our need to be justified is rooted in God's eternal character of righteousness and supplied by his attribute of grace. And so now let's get to, to some text, okay? Here is some of the Old Testament background of God's justice and God's grace, God's love for his people. These two things must go together. So turn to Isaiah 5.16 because this is a, a, just a glorious passage, and I don't want you to miss it. Um, to see that God's... See, this is, this is a doctrine that the world just does not like. That this is something we esteem, right? Uh, the uh, homosexual crowd, especially the, the 
you know, I hate using this word, the gay Christian network and all of that, they hate this idea of the righteousness, of the holiness, of the justice of God. They, they really do. They really do, you guys. They, they, this is what it all boils down to. They do not want a God like this. They, they really don't. Is everybody there? Isaiah 5.16. But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment, and the holy God will show his, himself holy in righteousness. Isn't that amazing? So this is, we're getting to the very bare essence of who God is. He is holy, he is just, and he is righteous. That's who he is. And because of God's moral character, that demands our justification as sinners. That is the basis of it. That is the foundation. This is the fountain of justification right here. It is not first and foremost our legal courtroom. <laughs> right? It is first and foremost God's righteousness. Man's laws and sense of righteousness are analogous to God, not the other way around. So, also, so we have this infinite principle, I would say. God is righteous. That is infinite of God. That is part of his immutable character, right? That's Really bad news for sinners, <laughs> right? That's not good news right now. But what is good news is if you look at Hosea 11, Hosea 11 shows us the covenant love of God. I preached about this at the conference, you remember, about the type of God, and we talked about this before in this class, about the covenant love of God and how special it is for his people. In Hosea 11, now remember, this is Hosea 11, not Hosea chapter 1. <laughs> the reason I mention that is because if you read the book of Hosea, what you're going to find is spiritual adultery after spiritual adultery after spiritual adultery. So you get all of the succession of judgment and, and paganism and idolatry. And, and uh, what does it say? I think it's in uh, Hosea, I think it's Hosea chapter 4, I think it is, where the people can't even distinguish anymore between Baal and Yahweh. And you go, I think you go something like seven chapters with nothing but judgment. <laughs> and then in chapter 11, verse 8, he says this, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebuim? Other nations he's judged. My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are Kindled, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Here's a question for you guys right now. Where is Ephraim right now? Anybody know? Where, where can we go meet that group of people? Uh, they're, they're Ephraimites. <laughs> right? So here's a question for you. What does this verse right here have to do with you? Because there's some great promises in here. But if these are not for us in this room, then this is something we look back at and we say, boy, that was so gracious that God used to do that. 
But what I'm here to tell you is that the book of Hosea is Christological above everything. <clears throat> and it has direct relevance for you and I. And I want you to be able to read this verse and say, this is for me. <laughs> right? This is not just for the Jews. This is not just for ancient Israel. This has relevance for me right now. And, and you know that to be true because Hosea himself teaches you that. Go to uh, Hosea chapter 3. Hosea chapter 3, <clears throat> shortest chapter of the book, but possibly the most powerful too. After he talks about uh, their idolatry, he gets to verse 5, and we get this very perplexing statement, if you do not agree with what I just said. It says, afterwards, the sons of Israel and, uh, excuse me, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord, their God, and David, their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Now, if you've been around me anytime talking about Christ in the Old Testament, you know I've quoted this over and over again. What's the problem with that verse, though? David is long gone, folks. David's been dead for 700 years. So what is he talking about? Yes. yes. You think the prophets knew a little bit more than we give them credit for? <laughs> you better believe it. They understood messianic theology. Yes, sir. Just, just so I can clarify, make sure. Clarify it. Are you saying that Old Testament promises are ours because they're found in Christ and he is the exemplar of what you find in the Old Testament? <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's a good... Um, it's a good question because I think what you have with typology um, is three phases. I would say you have the historical, you have the Christological, and then I would say you have the eschatological. Okay? So the historical time frame. There are certain things where you find partial fulfillment of these promises partial fulfillment, not full fulfillment, that some of these things were indeed historically relevant. This is amazing that God did this because he speaks this word in this time. This is what, 700 B.C., where he's talking uh, to them. I think it's the 7th century B.C. in Hosea. And, and some of the historical declarations that God is making were and did have historical uh, precedence. They were fulfilled partially. But then there's a Christological element where you have further for fulfillment, further fulfillment in Christ. And then you have the eschatological fulfillment where you have total, whoops, total fulfillment. Why can't I write an F? This, this uh, marker's failing me. So I think you see this all throughout the, the prophets, over and over and over and over, um, the prophecy about a child will be born to us. Well, many, many uh, uh, commentators like Keel and Dillich and others, they, they understand that that was speaking about a certain person in that time and that it had real historical fulfillment, partial fulfillment at that time, but they also discern that it had uh, undeniable Christological fulfillment 
And that Christological fulfillment, therefore, prepares us for the final eschatological fulfillment of those prophecies. That's as simple as I can make it. It's too simple, I understand. People have written books that are 1,000 pages long to explain that. But after wrestling with this for the last, I don't know, five years or so, I mean, this is what I've come to. Yeah? Now, can we at all say with any Old Testament verses that have, have a promise in them, can we say that all of them belong to us as well in Christ? Or, or are there some that were specifically and only for, for that person? Well, yeah, some, some I mean, they, they, they have, I say all of them have relevance for us in some way, some implication. For example, we're in Hosea, right? So turn to Hosea 11, back to 11. This is a, this is a heavily disputed passage by liberals. In Hosea chapter 11, you get this staggering prophecy in verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. See that? Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, quotes this. When Jesus was forced to flee to Egypt because Herod wanted to kill him. Right? And Matthew cites Hosea and says, as the prophet said, right? Or to fulfill what the prophet has spoken. Now the question is, is wait a minute. That passage, however, goes is what is it referring to when in, in if you're an Israelite, you heard that from Hosea, what is it talking about? The Exodus. Out of Egypt. Right? So God is reminding them, remember that I took you like a son out of Egypt. So he's reminding them of the Exodus, the redemption of the Exodus. But Matthew is quoting it messianically of Christ. So I'm just turning to Matthew because I want to know what he said there. Well, in, um, in the book that we went over, um, Jesus in Every Page, there was the different categories, and one of the categories was kind of like these messianic hints and types yeah. that we might not necessarily know that they were types unless we had an apostle or a, someone in the New Testament telling us that. That's right. And this might be one of those. We, That's right. We probably would never know that that was a... So Matthew four, uh, 2.14, So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill, plerao, what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. That's amazing. This was to fulfill. <laughs> so Hosea 11.1 1 is announcing something that only this can fulfill. However much was fulfilled here, it was still incomplete until we got to this point. So how is, um, how is Hosea using this in the same way that Matthew is using it? Matthew is using it Christologically of a future event. Hosea was using it redemptively in the same fashion, taking an old historical event that actually happened, referring to a specific generation, but now he's applying it to a future generation in a different prophetic context. 
So this is what redemptive historical hermeneutics is all about, trying to trace how uh, the authors of Scripture do that. Um, anyway, anyway, uh, we're going really slow, and we're out of time. <laughs> how can you go fast over this stuff? Yes, sir. So in conclusion of it all, wrap it all up, Mike. The beauty of it is the righteousness of Christ through the sacrifice he has made for us by the shedding of his blood, the covering of his people, God sees us that way under yeah. the blood of Christ. And we are under that protection of Christ. That's right. Through all eternity. Through a new, yeah. What does Hebrews say? Through a new and living way. Through the blood of Jesus. Yeah, that's right. We are, we are made righteous by his blood. Okay. Let me pray and we'll go. <clears throat> Father, Lord, we only got like two slides, but <laughs> that's okay. I'm so grateful just to be doing, people talk about doing life together. Um, and we just did theology together, so uh, I enjoy that, and, and I'm just so grateful that your people are eager to learn, and um, we just pray that you would uh, bless us as we learn more of your word to understand the great redemption that you have uh, wrought in Christ for us. Thank you, Father. Uh, bless our service in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.